Okay, well, here we are then, February 16th, 2014, lecture discussion number 143 on the Book of Romans, which is not quite the case. Um, I will uh, be continuing to insert myself into the recent debate of a few weeks ago between um, uh, Ken Ham and Bill Nye. I'm inserting myself unbeknownst to each of them, and certainly without their approval, which, of course, would never stop me anyway, and it's doubtful that either Mr. Ham or Mr. Nye will compensate my efforts as they sell their DVD. I expect there will be no mention of me and no photograph of me on the cover, uh, but uh, that wasn't my reason anyway. The point is, is that the book of Romans won't be obviously apparent today. Uh, most atheists believe that they are objecting to the book of Genesis, uh, but Romans 1 through, or 1, 18 through 26 is actually being placed on display as well. I can read that, at least that way I will let you know why it does fit in the book of Romans and why it does fit in this particular discussion. So go ahead, and if you want, go to Romans 1.18. I read it before when we actually went through it, but you'll see it now, I hope, in a more focused light. I'll read it, Romans 1.18 through 21. For the wrath of God. Now, let's just stop with wrath. What is wrath to God? His wrath and our wrath are not the same. Don't anthropomorphize and say he's, his anger and our anger. Our anger is sinful. Our wrath is sinful. His is not. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So that's a warning. If you're suppressing God's truth in unrighteousness, then you have now been warned, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So God is manifest in us as well as His creation. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Even His eternal power and Godhead. So the triune Godhead is apparent, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, recap that. God will judge. He will hold mankind accountable. God will end sin. He will end wickedness and the wicked ones. God has shown himself. He made himself obvious, if you will, in his creation. He made himself manifest and obvious in the person of Jesus Christ. But again, also in his physical creation, he is clearly seen. And you can understand his omniscience, his omnipresence, and therefore his omniscience, which means his goodness as well. And you can understand the triunity that is him. Let me repeat one more time. Omniscience uh, and goodness cannot be separated. He has to be good if he is omniscient. I'll continue to make that case as we go along. So the evolutionary monists, the evolutionary atheists, interchangeable, as well as all mankind, will have no excuse at their trial. Deceived by man's science, if that is their defense, that will not be accepted. He will not accept, I was deceived by man's science. He will only accept his blood, the blood of Christ. But again, that warning that we started with, being someone who is intentionally, knowingly deceiving the weak is another matter. Your, your trial, if that's your category, will not go well for you. So, all of that to say we're going to devote another Sunday to Mr. Ham and Mr. Nye, mostly Mr. Nye again. Uh, Mr. Ham, uh, I have, bless his heart, I, I understand what he was doing. Mr. Nye, I also understand what he was doing. So uh, he's the first one uh, that I think needs um, confrontation. And I'll have to see, uh, by the way, how the response 
today is to see how far, how many Sundays I go with this. Obviously, I can go Sunday after Sunday after Sunday on this subject. And I'll go as long as it is valuable to do so. Um, I have the two cliffside monitoring systems, as you know. I have the Drew accumulation measurement, the buckets that the elders hand out before the service, and my hate mail. By the way, the people on the Internet think that we really do hand out drill buckets. <laughs> and I don't want them not to think that. So if they won't know. It's just us, right? But I also get hate mail, which I, as you know, I've really begun to enjoy. And, and that's not a fake really. That's, that's a really, really, which concerns my family is they are going to have to be responsible for my care once I've descended into the abyss of my dotage. Um, they're going to say things like, remember when uh, he used to cackle and delight over his hate, hate mail? Because I do. When I first got it, I was discouraged. People hate me. Uh, that seemed to be... I'm sensitive and warm, warm and compassionate and very emotional. <laughs> uh, but I get it and I go oh that's not great this guy really hates me I, I got a letter recently from a gentleman in Virginia and not not happy with me at all uh, and he wrote a long it took him a long time to get his hate all the way done there was page after page so, but after a while I really start to like it and I despair when they stop writing. I, I go and I look every day. Did I get hate mail today? So all of you out there, I, I actually appreciate you and, and please don't stop. But that's a clue, by the way, to my family that maybe I am, I'm on the way down the mountain and uh, they're going to be pushing me around here pretty soon. And I really will have a drool bucket. That'll be a, a prophecy fulfilled. But don't worry yet. I, I have a, a preventative method, as you know. I have a regimen. I'm doing it now. I have Worcestershire sauce and aspartame, and that's proving quite successful in forestalling uh, any cognitive decline. So, speaking of all of that, Mr. Ham, Mr. Nye, and the like, I received a couple of letters that are of interest, and all the letters that I get and all the emails and the phone calls, um, I get a lot of uh, phone calls. I talk to as many of you as I can. But time constraints are particularly pressing right now. I got 4,000, 5,000 pounds of hardwood floor to put in on Monday. Um, and and I, I mucked a bunch of it in by myself. Uh, and two, I got the flying Lorenzos that helped me do that. They're very gracious. I wish they would come so that I could tell them in front of people how much I appreciate their physical capabilities. But we, uh, we put all of that in and I, I don't even, I can barely stand up. But my time is so limis, limited uh, to construction responsibilities that I can't assign any time to correspondence or responding to emails in a timely fashion. I'm working my way through them. Some of them now are months old and I still haven't got to them. And I thought though that I would read uh, some today because uh, they actually fit in. Um, and so I want to do that, and I know that um, you guys here in the audience um, like hearing from the Internet listeners, because they're fun. I have to admit that. It's a great delight for me. Okay, so here is Sharon from Texas. Did you all remember her? She wrote this week, um, Pastor Steve, that's me, did you watch the Bill Nye Ken Ham debate? Evolution creation debate. Hope to hear your comments on it in one of your lectures. See, she has started, she's listened to me so many times now that she knows how I think. Could you also comment as soon as possible with your opinion on Israel? I am shocked at how pervasive replacement theology is. I am curious why the covenant of circumcision was chosen by God when it only involves males. Is there some deep reason for that? And am I missing why women wouldn't be covenated. And then she goes on to say things that are... Um, uh, here, here's, bless you and your teaching. It's always a red-letter day when a new or new old lecture gets uploaded. Hugs to all you folks up there. Uh, uh, blessing, Sharon. Okay. 
First off, yes, uh, Sharon, I'm, as you can tell, last week I started Bill Nye and Ken Ham, and I'll continue. So I hope that you find it interesting and fun. With regard to replacement theology, it is pervasive. What that means is that in about 300, uh, Augustine, uh, the, uh, one of the, ap- not apostolic, founding fathers, if you will, uh, of the church age, could not figure out what happened to Israel in Scripture because they had been gone for almost 300 years, and he did not understand all of these references to Israel, so he thought that they must not be literal, they must be allegorical, and they must refer to the church, and so the church replaces Israel in Scripture, and Israel has ceased to be something that God will invest himself in. And that, of course, is not true. 1948 proved that that is not true. We actually have a physical Israel now. Replacement theology has been completely debunked. But it went on for all over 1,500, almost uh, uh, 2,000 years. So Israel is the wife, God of Yahweh, if you will, or YHVH. God is treating Israel as if she is an adulterous wife, that, and he has divorced her, but he intends to restore her. Uh, so she is in this symbol of a wife that commits adultery, that was married to him, and is now apart from him. And he is waiting for her to return. You see a lot of that symbolism, if you will, all throughout the Old Testament. He is treating the church as if she is a, the us, as if we are a betrothed virgin bride being sanctified and cleansed. So we have two entities. One is the wife of YHVH. The other is the bride of Christ. Uh, and he is treating us in those kinds of uh, Hebrew symbols, if you will, and therefore we can figure out what is happening ahead of time. He is going to restore Israel, that is apparent, and he is going to come for his bride, that is apparent. He made certain that we would understand it, and that's the reason for the way he's done it. Okay, I hope that helps you share it. Now, Peter from Australia to Pastor Steve of the 13th Baptist Church of Anchorage. It's always been my joke. I never wanted to be a first, I, the first Methodist, first Lutheran, first Baptist. I always wanted to be the ninth or the fourth. Let's see if anybody would th- find that funny. To Pastor Steve, 13th Baptist Church of Anchorage, starring the brightest light in religion, actually went supernova recently. He said so in past sermon. And number one, parking bay holder, because that's my joke, you know, as you know, I've always wanted to have parking bays that said highest tither on them, closest to the church, on the Fourth Baptist Church of Anchorage. And uh, I appreciate that he actually likes my jokes. Reading from the new unabridged whole megaphone amplified Bible in plain English. Yes, those other denominations only have part of the complete Bible, so don't expect them to understand anything or, heaven forbid, actually read it. After all, where did they say, where did it say Jesus quoted John 3.16 so he didn't read it? Why should we? So sit back, relax, and enjoy another seeker-sensitive, warm and fuzzy sermon from our beloved teacher, the one and only Steve Chronister. The name should be spoken like an MMA announcer or boxing ringmaster. P.S. Listeners, don't forget to give generously so you can get a faster first-off-the-rank download. Do you want to be stuck at the 55,000 download? Put your hands up high so he can see you all. Sorry, fake sorry. We all know he wouldn't want you to do that. Never put your hands up in church. No, put those hands down deep into your pockets so that you can pull out all those wads of spare cash you have hidden away and give generously. That way you can be guaranteed a seat or a download, an MP3. Okay, he says. Perhaps the greeting is a bit over the top. First, Pastor Steve, you can't fool us internet listeners. Away for two weeks. Seriously. You gave the game away at one of your earlier broadcasts. We know your parishioners twisted your arm, so you reduced the sermon to a couple of minutes and didn't bother to record it. Just as an excuse to extend the buffet to a, for, for a few hours. You can't fool us. We know. And, of course, jealous, because you were probably enjoying yourself, singing carols like Little Supernova of Bethlehem or the first day of Christmas. My true love sent to me 153 fishes. Our circumcision, oh circumcision, to the tune of oh Christmas tree, oh oh, Christmas tree. Warning, (laughs) my wife is very disappointed. 
as she looks forward to me to go off to the gym for an hour each day where I can listen to the sermon whilst working out. She is not happy. She would be most grateful if you could get back to work and extend the sermons for at least another 30 minutes. Okay, now this goes on. <laughs> he, he says, uh, um, he said, I, oh, long note from an old ranting four-eyed fat man. Uh, and I can't read it all, but I just wanted you to know. Um, oh, well, of course, he, he talks about, and you should come and get uh, and read it. He, he has a, a lengthy section on Stephen Hawking and a uh, Polish-American theoretical physicist, Joseph Polczynski. Um, and he concluded, has conclusions on black holes and things that you would find, I think, interesting. General relativity. And he ends with this. Oh, well, of course, I think Hawking had a, made a perfectly understandable mistake. He was looking in the wrong place. He should have looked at the current economic system of many countries in the world where money is vanishing at a phenomenal rate. May God keep you, inspiring you in your lectures. Peter from Adelaide, South Africa, where the heat has clearly buckled my brain. It's about 105 degrees again, but thankfully cooler, cooler than two weeks ago when we had 115 degree Fahrenheit, and at night it fell to 95. I know, buck up and stop whining. Internet listener number 55,000. By the way, who is internet listener number 666? <laughs> okay, so if you would like, come up and just look through that. That is, uh, I wanted to read it so that you would know what the typical cliffside listener is. He's, they're very funny, they're very sarcastic, they're very inquisitive, they're very well educated, and um, it's an astonishing thing to find them, and I appreciate them all very much. You would, you would, Ben told me a long time ago that Cliffside self-selects. He's absolutely right. If you come here, you're different. We didn't make you different. You made yourself different. And nowhere is that more apparent than my internet now. Okay, back to our list that I put on the board last night, or last week. We left off at cosmic microwave background radiation, which requires us to grasp a black body uh, radiation, if you will, thermal emission, which I have to move this over because I'm going to go someplace else today. We did some of that last week. Now I'm using the wholly reversible dry erase board that is all clean because of terithathy. Yes, that is a real name for those of you on the internet. It's hard to say and hard to spell. So we're going to have to get into black body radiation. Oops, can't spell black. Black body radiation. And that's going to get us to Max Planck which, of course, is Planck's constant and Planck's law. That's where we're headed. Now, I thought I might get to that today. I don't think I will because of the amount of material that I have, but I need to get it on the board so you start seeing the, uh, if you will, the vocabulary. If I can get you to start internalizing and absorbing the Vocabulary that will help you a great deal. Things are named for people in physics and mostly physics. Kirchhoff, when I was in electrical, when I did my electrical physics studies, uh, Kirchhoff was very important to me. I had to know who he was. I had to know who Ohm was. I had to know who Ampere was. I had to know who Hertz were because everything is described with their name. Kirchhoff's law, Ohm's law, uh, how many cycles per second was changed to Hertz. And so when you have the, when you begin to internalize the vocabulary, Planck's constant, Planck's law, I forgot the S, when you understand why they were chosen to, to put their names on these things, it just wasn't an honor. It actually made sense to do so. So that's part of what I'm doing with all of this. And, and as I was moving towards entropy and mathematics, because that's where we left off, there's a mathematical component to entropy. Mathematics confronts the preservation of low entropy, entropy as well as the crea uh, creation of low entropy. So entropy has two elements to it as it applies to mathematics. 
I have preservation. Now, this won't mean anything to you until next week. And I have creation. Or is it even possible to create a low entropy uh, environment? Essentially, this is the question of the evolutionists, the evolutionists' premise of the sun. The sun now factors in. The sun, the evolutionist believes, or his premise is, is that the sun is the mechanism that overcomes the second law of thermodynamics as it relates to the origin of life. You see, there is a problem. The problem is, is the second law of thermodynamics seems to oppose the evolutionary mechanism. So they say, no, the sun solves that, gives us uh, an open system, if you will. And they have three things that they love. They love the sun. I shouldn't say they love, but the, okay, I will. They love the sun. They love natural selection. Sun and natural selection, and they love this vast, unimaginable amount of time. So those are the three, vast time. Those are the ones that are the foundation or the cornerstone, if you will, um, of the evolutionary philosophy, the evolutionary position. The sun, natural selection, and vast, unimaginable amounts of time. Those are the foundations of evolution, the fossil record, the geological columns, uh, the genetic mutations, uniformitarianism, those are all important. Make no mistake, I don't want to say they're not important, but these are the three. So if you want to understand evolutionary philosophy, you, you, you find yourself dealing with preservation of low entropy by means of the sun in an open system, this process of natural selection, uh, which has allowed for transition. By the way, they now say that there are no, trans I'm sorry, we keep saying on the creationist side, or kept saying, I don't know that that happens much anymore, that there are no transitional fossils. And they say, now what? That there, everything is a transitional fossil. Every, every organism is transitional. And what causes, what provides the energy for that transition is a natural selection process and the sun. And of course, fast time. So obviously we're going to invest most of our energy to those three things as we move along, and I've begun to do so. But first, any discussion on atheism, reductionism, physicalism, materialism, monism, pick your favorite. They're all the same thing. All of those terms, atheism, reductionism, physicalism, materialism, monism. That's the same stuff. Everyone. You should, so pick your favorite. Any discussion of those or, or, or of, of it should begin with philosophy. Something that I try to include as often as I can. Because it's really existence versus non-existence. And if you've been around me for a while, you know that I say that existence requires immortality. You can't have existence unless you are an immortal being. Now, your destination as an immortal being is still in question, but you have immortality. Again, what's at risk is your destiny or your destination. Also, I will make the case and have in the past, and you can look on the Internet for those lectures, that existence not only requires immortality, but it requires free will. I cannot separate immortality or free will from existence. If you don't have all three of those, then you do not have existence. Okay? So I think that we begin any discussion on evolutionary theory with existence versus non-existence, which, of course, is philosophy. The evolutionists believe that we do not have existence, that we do not have free will, that we are simply random events. And those random events that are us will be reduced to particles at physical death. And therefore... Uh, we're merely waiting to be revealed as nothing. We may be dumb and think that we're something, but they will say, no, you're a random event waiting to be revealed as nothing. And the Christian believes the opposite of that, right? The Bible teaches the opposite of that, and that's why we believe it, that we are dualistic and that we are a combination of an eternal living soul or mind, if you will, that has continuity, is continual. 
that survives physical death. Our personhood is not our body. It is, it is our personhood is in our living soul component, not in our physical machine component. If I'm on a slab in a, in a mortuary, don't come in and say, there's Steve. I'm not, that's not me. Me, myself, my personhood, does not, is not this physical structure that you're looking at. All this does is manifest who I am to you. You get to see what I'm thinking. I get to express what I'm thinking. But one of those two philosophies, the non-existent philosophy, the random philosophy, that's the evolutionary philosophy. That one says it's all chaos, it's random, it's hopeless, it's meaningless, it's purposeless. And it's advocates, by the way, if you study uh, evolution for any length of time, they always have questionnaires they send out to each other. Do you believe the universe has purpose, they say. Overwhelmingly, they say no. Evolutionists overwhelmingly believe that the universe has no purpose, none at all. And so you have this hypocrisy that develops. If the universe has no purpose, why should we study it? If it's a random, chaotic mess, why do they invest all their time into studying it, as if it does have some predictability to it. In fact, Mr. Nye went on and on and on about predictability, which is the absolute opposite of his philosophy. His philosophy is that the universe is random, chaotic, hopeless, meaningless, and purposeless. But then now he's looking for predictability. And they understand that hypocrisy, by the way. They understand that. Uh, they, They just don't talk about it publicly. They do amongst themselves. So that's the, that's one side. The other side, which is the absolute opposite of that. The Bible is the absolute opposite of it. The Bible describes a loving, just, fair, good God who designed us and designed the whole creation as a way of I will say, building us and teaching us. We live in an environment, now it's a sinful environment, a corrupt environment, but originally it was a perfect environment, and its purpose was for us to develop. To what? What were we supposed to develop into? Representative of him. We were to become more like him. So the Bible describes a loving, just, fair, good God who designed us and endowed us with will and existence and then who provides hope and purpose and meaning, who provides life as he defines life. Those two models, if you want to think of them that way, cannot be more opposite, more irreconcilable, no more divergent, more contrapositive. They are absolute total opposites. And there's no way they, you can put them together, although many Christians today, and you get on the internet, try desperately to put those together. They want to blend evolution to scripture. It's a hopeless process and it's unnecessary to give Mr. Ham great credit. He knows that. But Christians today want to, uh, I don't know, they would rather be right, uh, liked than right. Why would you embrace a philosophy that is evolution? We'll get to that in a minute. Now, Mr. and I, as you may remember, if you watched this debate, he was relentless. He was almost singular. It seemed to me that he was almost in a state of panic. And he continues, by the way, to go on all kinds of shows and repeat the same um, talking points that he had. He said essentially this, that the United States would collapse. All technology would dwindle and abate within one generation. And within one generation, we as a nation would starve, freeze, live in mud huts in the dark. If evolution was not declared to be unassailable truth. He's saying evolution must be protected from any and all scrutiny or the country is doomed technologically. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm being a little sarcastic. I might have a, a, a little bit of hyperbole, but I'm getting pretty close. 
He was clear. This is what he essentially was inferring. Only stupid people question evolution. Stupid Christians can't be included in in the scientific community because Christians, by definition, are stupid. The nation needs protection from the stupid Christians. And he said it over and over and over again. Like I said, it was almost his only singular point. I I found myself, while I'm listening to him, saying, you know what? I agree with you. We have the potential to be living in mud huts, freezing, starving, and in darkness. That's probably very within one generation. That's going to be true if the co-conspirators of evolutionary philosophy get their way. That would be the rabid worshippers of anthropogenic climate change, right? As you talk to one, they want to shut down all oil production. They want to shut down all coal production. They want to shut down all power generation. They want to shut down. They want to deny water to agriculture in California. Can you do anything more foolish than to, do, than to stop your agricultural system from functioning? California cannot overcome these people. They're not going to give water to the farmers. They're going to shut it off. Ask why. I'm going to go on record. I I like gasoline. I like electricity a lot. Uh, I like food. I think food is good. Okay, I'm, I'm digressing again. It is beyond obvious that a society, when a society promotes hopelessness as the only possible truth, as Mr. Nye wants us to do, and subsequently as, an, as just a direct uh, result of that, it will render human life as meaningless, worthless. It, when that happens, that society will be consumed by evil. It will become debased and immoral, and as Romans said, dark. Mr. Nye would be wise to regard that. Immoral societies destroy themselves every time. Evolution is defined by immorality. They would say amoral. I would say to you there is no amoral. There is only moral and immoral. And I said last Sunday, the why of evolution is central. Or why is evolution so precious to these people? Why do they want it to be true so badly? And so i got to come up with an example of why they do that. And I'm going to give you a couple here in a minute. Examples that begin to explain why the scientific community refuses to critically assess the host of flaws that exist. Why this emotional fervor, this clinging to positions that cannot be defended, and they do it at all costs. It doesn't matter. They're going to do it. Answering the why of evolution is foremost. Again, it's an emotional phenomenon. And it's obvious not just in evolution. It's obvious in the anthropogenic global warming position. It's the same thing. These are not, the, the facts are, none of the, nothing can be debated in those venues uh, logically. The emotion has overcome them both. Mr. Nye was a great example of this. I recognize many, many scientists that don't do that. There are candid uh, evolutionary scientists that will admit the, uh, the, the issues that are in evolutionary philosophy, but the overwhelming number of them are extremely emotional. Certainly their followers are. That the, uh, the old bumper sticker, God protect me from your followers. Could easily say, um, evolution, please protect me from your followers. As they are, as I said, worshippers. And they're very aggressive and very emotional. Okay, so let's, let's take on an example that begins to uh, explain why things are the way they are. And one of those examples is going to be carbon-14 dating. Okay? Carbon-14, you'll see it done this way a lot. Uh, as opposed to, or if you want, you can, let me just 
put them on here. Radiocarbon, 14, you'll see it that way. Uh, it's radioactive. Now, not radioactive in the sense that you might be used to. It's radioactive, but not in a harmful way. Uh, and in, if you want, the, you can put it in contrast with carbon-12. It's not really a contrast, but it, there is a difference. So you have carbon-12 and you have carbon-14. There are relatively very few um, carbon-14 atoms. About the, the mathematics of it would be one in a trillion, approximately. So of, of carbon atoms, one in a trillion is carbon-14. So I'll have a ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12. Carbon-14 atoms weigh approximately 14 atomic mass units. So that's why they're called, duh, carbon-14. So therefore, how much do carbon-12 atoms weigh? 12 atomic mass units. Carbon-14 occurs when cosmic radiation, remember this beginning this discussion on cosmic background radiation, the fact that the atmosphere is bombarded by radioactive um, energy. When cosmic radiation strikes the upper atmosphere of the Earth, it converts nitrogen to carbon-14. As you know, when somebody asks you what is the what is the atmosphere mostly comprised of, is it mostly comprised of human-based emissions? Find out what the atmosphere is made out of. But anyway, when the radiation hits a nitrogen atom from the cosmic from a cosmic source. When it strikes the upper atmosphere, it converts that nitrogen to, to nitrogen to radiocarbon 14. And radiocarbon 14 or carbon 14 is unstable. And carbon 12 is stable. And, and soon I, I've got to, uh, I've got to discuss nuclear instability very soon. The origin of nuclear instability. When and why did nuclear in instability occur? Was nuclear instability, is that something that could be defined as good? Would God make a, a, uh, a condition on earth as part of what, what he defines as good? Would he have nuclear instability in it? Would there be uh, carbon-14, an unstable uh, atom created by cosmic radiation? We'll have to do that. But for today, carbon-14 is unstable. Carbon-12 is stable. Anyway, most carbon-14 quickly does what? It combines with oxygen to form radioactive carbon dioxide. Now, I don't have time to put all of the uh, chemistry on the board for you today, but we'll do it soon. When I have radioactive carbon dioxide, what absorbs carbon dioxide? Plants do. So plants are going to absorb carbon-12 and carbon-14, and the carbon-14 is radioactive. Does that make sense so far? So I have radioactive carbon-14 in the plants, and the plants are at the bottom of the food chain, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and they are now absorbing this carbon-14 and this carbon-12 in the same ratio, by the way, that that carbon-14 and carbon-12 exists in the atmosphere. So I need to know what ratio in the atmosphere currently do we have this 14 carbon and this 12 carbon, what ratio that is, what is it currently, and what was it 5,000 years ago? What was it 100 years ago? Is it changing or is it uniform? That becomes an important question. But plants are going to incorporate carbon-12 and carbon-14 in the same ratio or proportion that they exist in the atmosphere. How are we doing so far? anyone awake? Good. This is very important because this will explain the why of evolution. Why they want it. Because they reveal something here. Now carbon-14 is going to decay back into nitrogen. It won't stay carbon-14. It will decay back into nitrogen. And it does it 
on a half-life of 5,730 years approximately. So that's my half-life. Let me explain that a little bit more concisely. It takes, put it in simplistic terms, I think. It takes 5,730 years for half of the carbon-14 to return to a nitrogen. Does that make sense? Did I explain that in a way? I hope I did. Anybody, any questions so far? Never raise your hand here. Okay. It takes 5,730 years for half of a carbon-14 to decay into nitrogen. So half of carbon-14 will decay to nitrogen in 5,730 years. The remaining other half will decay in another 5,730 years, and so on. Looking at you, hoping that got through. When carbon-14 is absorbed by an animal now that eats the plants, or eats another animal that ate the plants, whenever the plants that absorb the carbon-14, which is radioactive, is now ingested into an animal, I have this buildup of carbon-14 in the animal. Radioactive carbon-14, radiocarbon-14, right? When that animal dies, the carbon-14 begins to do what? Decay back into nitrogen. Carbon-14 begins its decay process. Because the death stops the intake of carbon-14. There's no longer any carbon-14 going into the animal, into its body, into its bones, into its organic system, if you will. The intake, again, stops at physical death. It's th thus, it's possible to measure the carbon-14 that remains in that animal since we know that carbon, radiocarbon-14 will steadily decay into nitrogen by a half-life of 5,730 years. Let me interject here. You'd think it would be helpful to know exactly how much carbon-14, radiocarbon-14, is in the animal at its death. Because, you see, if I know exactly how much that dead animal had in it when it died, then I can... Take, I can figure out how much nitrogen it has in it. I can figure out how much radioactivity, uh, radioactive carbon-14 it has. I know the half-life is 5,730 years. I have a simple mathematical equation, ultimately. And I can do what with that animal's remains? I can figure out how old it is. And remember, what do I need? I, I have to have this vast amount of time i got to have that. Oh. The evolutionists don't really, the evolutionary philosophers are over, they're not willing to try to figure out the exact amount of radiocarbon-14 in that animal at death. They make a uniformitarianism assumption, a uniformitarian assumption, which they think the rate of carbon-14 absorbed in the far past is exactly the same to the rate of carbon-14 absorbed today. That's a, a uniform assessment of the rate, right? And I'm going to grant them that. I know I'm being gracious because I want to. They they love their uniformitarianism. I don't want to take it away from them. On their side is uniformitarianism. On on the on the biblical side, on the creation side, is catastrophism. We think the geological evidence reflects catastrophe. They think it reflects a uniform process. So radiocarbon decay, or carbon-14 dating, is considered, so you know this, is considered only to be useful to a date of about 60,000 years. So you're asking me, well, that doesn't seem like very much. We're used to their... Uh, 65 million, 75 million, 120 million years they throw at us. But 60,000 years is all that carbon-14 can really give us, carbon-14 decay. That's all it gives us. It's only useful to date an animal uh, to an age of less than 60,000 years. There's an outside edge. You might be able to get up to 90 or 100,000, but mostly the, everyone is in agreement that 60,000 is the is the horizon for radiocarbon-14 decay. 
So keep that in mind because next we have to move on to permineralization or the fossilization process. So as quickly as I can, fossils are very rare events. By that I mean fossils don't normally occur. You've all watched the westerns on TV as young people. Uh, Buffalo Bill killed how many what? Buffaloes, actually bison, right? How many bison were there? There were millions and millions of them. They would take days to go over the railroad tracks. They'd stop trains because these massive herds would go by. How many fossils of bison do we have of those millions and millions of animals? We don't have any. No bison fossils. We have maybe find some bison remains, but we do not have permineralization. See, that's by the way, you have to ask, is fossilization happening today or permineralization? I know that's a hard word to say. It's hard for me. I have the enlarged tongue and I don't have enough soda. Do not sit in the front row when I am saying permineralization. Anything can happen. I cannot be held responsible. I'm like Gallagher. You may, if you know that, what that reference is, you're old. But uh, you have to ask, is this fossilization process happening today? And if it is not, why isn't it happening today? What causes permineralization? Now, as an aside, fossils of, of vertebrates, land animals, as a percentage of all fossils recovered, are not even 1%. 95% of recovered fossils are marine invertebrates. Something I would expect with a catastrophic hydraulic water-based event. Say, a flood deposit, for example. 4% of recovered Fossils are vegetation. Vertebrates are included in the remaining 1%. But back to permineralization now. Fossils form when an animal is quickly encapsulated. Very rapid burial, for example. Now you will see um, tree sap or amber encapsulate insects, and those are also uh, an example. That's a little different because... That process is different. But permineralization, when I have very rapid burial, so I have an animal buried quickly, and its organic material is now replaced by mineral material. That's permineralization. That is the fossilization process. Quickly. When I find a fossil of a dinosaur, I am not finding its bones. Its bones are organic. It was buried quickly. It is in a mineral-rich, water-soaked environment, and that water seeps into the buried organic tissue, and as the water cools, I have to have warm water, as the water cools, it abates, the mineral solution replaces the organic tissue. And that solution becomes hard. It's fossil, fossilized, permineralized. Fossils are not bone. Fossils are mineral. And I need to know, when I come across a fossil, what kind of mineral replaced the bone. Now, let me repeat some of that. I, I've got to watch my time. I have water and mud, if you will, bury an animal. And it, the water is warm and it's filled with it's a, a solution, if you will. And it's carrying tremendous amounts of pressure, heat, and minerals. And it seeps into that organic structure and it dissolves the organic material, if you will, and makes a cast out of it. That's permineralization. That's fossilization. Fossils are not bone. Fossils are mineral. Can't say that enough. And again, yeah, I can find out what mineral did it. Not every fossil has the same mineral composite or composition. Now, as you know, we live in Alaska. We have the Lipscomb bone bed on the Colville River. We have polar dinosaurs here, thousands and thousands of them, and they are mostly permineralized, fam uh, fossilized. 
We have fossilized dinosaurs. We have one of the largest fossilized dinosaur graveyards. By the way, this earth, if it's one thing, it's a graveyard. Dig down, you find death everywhere. What book would tell you that? Just Never mind. But dinosaurs in Alaska, uh, dinosaurs period, are mostly permineralized. Notice that I said mostly. What am I implying? That some are not permineralized. Some dinosaur remains are not fully fossilized. I have mammoths in Alaska, in Siberia, vast herds of mammoths. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. And they were frozen. They were encapsulated in ice, which is not a liquid process in the sense of soaked heat infiltration and permineralization. Uh, I don't have warm water infiltration with the mammoths. Mammoths are therefore not permineralized. I have vast herds and they're frozen. And they're still there. They haven't been chipped out very much, but they can be. It's a very different event. The freezing of the mammals and the permineralization of, of dinosaurs, two different events. I have to account for when they happen. So do I have post-flood catastrophism? So, the evolutionists are eager to date the mammoth bones. And they want to use what? Carbon-14. Because I have an organic animal that stopped the intake of radiocarbon-14, and I can use the 5,730-year half-life, and I can account for how much carbon-14 is in that animal, and I can come up with an age. Again, basic math. And they're really, they like to do the mammoth bones. But, but, an evolutionist will scream and kick and fight to the death. If someone attempts to carbon date an unpermineralized dinosaur bone. So, again, what? We have unpermineralized dinosaur bones? We have non fossilized dinosaur bones? Yes, we do. They've been found. And what do you think they did with them, these insubordinate little scientists? Well, they subjected them to, it's a bone. I need to find out if it has something in it. What do I need to find out if it has in it? It's a bone. It's not mineral. I want to, well, DNA, obviously, if I had any any uh, collagen, if I had uh, any uh, and there is a lady, we'll talk about her in a few weeks, uh, that uh, is living a, a hellish life. She's getting blasted by all sides. Um, she's a, a paleontologist um, at the University of North Carolina named Schweitzer, I believe. I hope I got that right. Maybe not. But anyway, um, she has found traces of blood, and she's been able to take not not actual red She's been able to take material from a dinosaur bone and inject it into another animal, and that animal will um, process antibodies. So that tells you that that is, a, that is something that is uh, not only non-fossilized, but also has the ability to create antibodies in a, in a living organism. So, uh, again, we'll get to her as time goes by. She's caused a big problem. Bless her heart. So, the first thing they did with the bone is they submitted uh, these insubordinate little guys. They submitted them to carbon-14 dating uh, technologies, including accelerator mass spectrometry. Barely say that. And the evolutionists immediately objected to that. Oh, no. Dinosaur remains are at a minimum 65 million years old. That's how old dinosaur bones are. 65 million years. Carbon-14 dating is only good to 60,000 years. You cannot uh, date carbon-14 on a dinosaur bone. 
So all evolutionists, all you have to do is get on the sites, all of them. They, they want to disallow any and all carbon-14 dating of any dinosaur uh, that is not permineralized bone. You cannot do it. They, they cry and they scream and they want the, law, the process to be lawfully prohibited, again, illegal. If you found a dinosaur bone in your crawl space and you wanted to date it with carbon-14, they would... It's, it's a screaming fit. And uh, they say, listen, it's stupid. You stupid people. How dare you per, uh, go to a carbon dating process on a 65 million year bone. It's not possible for that bone to have one atom of carbon in it. So you should not ever even attempt to do it. They have a problem though. As I said last week, the internet is now a very difficult challenge for all of these things to deal with. And we have the Chinese. The Chinese are not intimidated by Darwin. They're scared of the communists. They are, uh, they fear the communist state. They do not fear Darwin. We in the United States, we fear the Darwinists and we do not fear the communists. And certainly that's, uh, the way New York City seems to go right now. We would be better served to follow the Chinese on this issue. Don't come forward because I've got, how much time have I got left? None. Okay. That's not what's happening here. Don't come forward. Don't even think about it. Go back. You'll distract me and I have to go fast. Carbon-14 dating is going forward. And if there is found a single atom of carbon-14 in a supposed 65-million-year-old bone, then that bone is not 65 million years old. Oops, we have problems. And of course, what's being found in these dinosaur bones that they are subjecting to carbon-14 dating? They're finding carbon-14. Carbon-14 atoms are being found and dates are being derived. And what do they date these dinosaur bones as between 22,000 and 39,000 years old? And the atheists shout what? Contamination. Because they say the bones are 65 million years. That's a fact. It's unassailable. There is no possibility. There's anything else. Don't even attempt to date them. You can't date them. Only stupid people date them. And you are all stupid people. You stupid people. And, the, and so they shout contamination, which is certainly, to, to I'll say that's a possibility. Contamination could come from decaying organic matter in the surrounding soils where the bone was, uh, was found, and contaminants can be introduced from the scientists who are performing the testing. And so let's have a willingness to impartially oversee the process to prevent the introduction of contaminants or remove the contaminants from the, or so the pollution of the test is not a possibility. Won't be allowed. Now you know the why of evolution. See, you have to ask why. The why of evolution prevents that from happening. There's no way that we will, we will submit a dinosaur, unpermineralized bone to carbon-14 testing procedures. The atheist will maintain that rock strata is dated by finding, they're going to go back to this. Rock data is, 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 uh, rock strata is dated by finding the pre-presumed dinosaur bone in the 65 million year, uh, of 65 million years. Let me say that more correctly because I'm getting, trying to hurry. I have a rock in a strata. And there's a dinosaur bone next to it. They say the dinosaur bone is next to the rock. The dinosaur bone is how old? It's 65 million years. So therefore the rock is 65 million years. And then they go, by the way, we have discovered now, we have decided that the rock is 65 million years old, so now we're going to date the dinosaur bone. What's the date to? 65 million years. It's brilliant. It's exactly what they do. It's a circular system. They interpret the rock strata based on the theory that the bone is 65 million years old. Then they confirm the theory on the basis that the rock strata is determined to be 65 million years old. It's circular propaganda. Why? 
Why do they do that? More on that next Sunday. Finally, I know you like the word finally. Thermodynamics or evolution is where we go. Notice how I phrase that. Thermodynamics or evolution. To repeat from last week, in order to impress upon you the terminology within the issue, low entropy equals high-ordered complexity. So low entropy equals high complexity, designed complexity, if you will, but certainly high-ordered complexity. High entropy equals randomness chaos. The earth currently possesses spectacular low entropy, high complexity, high order, design. You're sitting in a design chair in a designed room with design clothes on. You're eating designer foods made by Matt. Okay? The earth currently possesses spectacular low entropy. We have to explain that. How do we have this kind of complexity? The essence of classical Newtonian, if you will, thermodynamics is the relationship between heat and mechanical energy and the conversion of the heat and the mechanical energy one to the other. All matters of physics, chemistry, and biological processes are subject to thermodynamics, the first and the second laws of thermodynamics. And they'll say to you, physics begets chemistry and chemistry begets biology. Cover that again uh, in a couple of weeks as well. The first law, let me read this so I get it right. Nothing is now coming into existence or going out of existence. This is the first law of thermodynamics. Nothing is coming into existence or going out of existence. Matter and energy may be converted into one another, but there is never a net increase in the combined total of what exists. The second law. Every system left to its own devices always moves from order to disorder. (coughs) Its energy transformed to lower levels of availability, ultimately becoming completely and totally random, unavailable for work. Or, if you will, the entropy of a closed system cannot decrease. Because of the second law, the evolutionists therefore find themselves worshiping the sun. They gotta figure out how we got this spectacular. When things naturally tend towards randomness, how did we get this spectacular low entropy? Because, so they worship the sun. They say because the sun did it. They say, The sun, they argue, renders the earth an open system, providing the energy to account for evolutionary processes and events. They need energy for evolution. Otherwise, we'll decay into random chaos, which they say we eventually become anyway. But we have an open system. That means the system is open and energy is coming in, as opposed to a closed system that has no source of energy. Does that make sense? This open system... The sun providing the energy to account for evolution is called the compensation argument. And we'll slog through it next week to see if it has any mathematical merit. I'm going to read to you Revelation 22 now. Now the musicians can come forward. They were trying to pressure me off the stage, much to the delight of the audience. I'm going to leave you with Revelation 22. Uh, This is God talking about the restoration of all things. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Those are the ones, the believing, his children. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. They will have eternal life. So God is saying to you that the sun is going to be replaced. The ball in the sky that the evolutionists need so badly and that they worship and they they say is the source of energy, God is saying, I'm going to get rid of it. 
You won't need it. He's replacing it with who? With himself. Jesus Christ, the Lord God, is going to be the source of light. And everyone will live forever. There will be no entropy. We'll be in a low entropy state, not a high entropy state. We'll be in no entropy, I think, but we'll talk about that. We're going to live forever. That verse, as an aside, answers Wilder Penfield's question. Wilder Penfield figured out that the mind separated from the body at death. He figured that out. He was a neurosurgeon, a brilliant one. But he couldn't figure out where the energy supply for the mind would be after the body died. I had to have an energy source to keep that mind functioning. Because he had the second law of thermodynamics. So where does the energy course for the mind come from? God tells you Revelation 22, 4 through 5. I'm the energy source. You think it's the sun. It is not. I'll prove it. It's me. What is the energy source for the sun, just as an aside? We'll get into the mathematical probability that the sun is the answer to the evolutionist's dream next week.